What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to the Mothman Podcast. We have a special guest with us tonight for Halloween. You all know him and love him. Please help me welcome Frankenstein. I've kind of been hanging around in Europe for a little while, especially after they tried to burn down my house. They thought they got me. <laughs> I got away. How's the wife and kids? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, they're kind of uh, laid back. Uh, the wife's a little bit dried out. Uh, I'm going to have to get her a... a some kind of uh, massage that uh, I can dunk her in water so her skin will absorb. And the kids, they are doing great. It's just hard to keep them off of the computers. You know what I mean? <laughs> you better not let your wife hear what you just said. Well, you know, she kind of comes to me and she says, will you rub this moisturizer on me? And I got... Don't really want to touch her. Oh my. Has anyone tried to set you on fire lately? No, I learned my lessons. I know that if I uh, let my address out, that they would probably come and get me and try to burn me up again. I don't know what this is, but they think I'm flammable. So, how's the weather in Switzerland? Well, you know, I kind of left Switzerland. I kind of went through Germany and. On up to Egypt and kind of hopped on a ship that was bringing back some artifacts. And I just laid real still with the family and they thought they were bringing back pieces of uh, the ancient Egyptians. So I got into the U.S. and been hiding here ever since, kind of with vampires and all these, these scary things and just waiting for Halloween. Oh my, that sounds like a wild trip. Are you planning to get together with Jack- Dracula and Wolfman this year? Oh yeah, we get out on Halloween. That's the only time that we can really party. Everybody thinks this is a costume. <laughs> I can say, it, yeah, it is a costume. It's the original costume. <laughs> yeah, we'll be hanging out. Uh, just trying to find some little ones to get some blood. You know how to feed the vampires and, and kind of keeping the wolf from eating up all the candy. Oh, 
Have you ever tried to throw a ball for the Wolfman to see what would happen? I did. It went flat real fast. Oh my. Well, thank you so much for being with us this evening, Frankenstein. And for our listeners, we have a special Halloween show with stories for you to listen to. So pour yourself a drink, get comfy, and enjoy these spooky stories. Good evening, everyone. Make sure that you watch out for Frankenstein, Wolfman, and the vampires over Halloween. It might not be a costume. Fantasy will present The Shadow People. And now for our story, an original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Shadow People. Somewhere along the line of your life, you've met them. You have come in contact with The Shadow People. When did we first discuss it? Oh, yes, Brian and Elaine and I. It was in my apartment. There was only one light on in the entire place. Oh! What's wrong? Oh! Elaine, what's the matter? Oh, it's silly, I know, but I, I, I thought I saw something in that doorway over there. Where? Over there, right over there. Where are you going, David? Over to that archway, just to let you know that nothing's here. Huh. You see, Elaine, nothing's wrong, nothing at all. Are you satisfied that there's no one else here but us? 
Yes, I... Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought that I... Leave the overhead lights on. Sorry, I thought that... Put them back on, David, please. All right, Elaine. Well, what's bothering you, sis? I don't know. It's just that... I don't know. Tell us about it, Elaine. Tell us what's bothering you. You promise that you... You won't laugh at me? Of course not. Brian? Oh, Elaine, I'm your brother. If something's troubling you, uh, I'd like to know about it. All right, then. The reason I was so upset was the fact that I saw someone or something standing in that archway. But Elaine, David showed you that there was no one else in here. The lights were put on you saw for yourself if we were alone. I'm not talking about something you... You can see in the light, Brian. I'm not talking about a human being. And what's it all about, Elaine? In the darkness, I... I saw something that can't be seen in a lighted area. And I've seen it several times before. You're sure you're not imagining this, Elaine? Oh, I don't have that good an imagination, Brian. How long have you... Have you seen this thing, Elaine? Well, it... It started about six weeks ago. You were in Detroit on business, Brian. Mom and Dad were on vacation. I was in the house by myself, in the library. There was only one light on. I sat in the chair beneath it, reading. Several times, I thought that something was watching me. I felt there was someone in the room with me, standing right in back of me. Every so often, I'd glance back over my shoulder, but there seemed to be nothing there. And then... Then I thought I heard someone whispering. I wasn't sure, but when I heard it again, I got up and I, I, I looked all over the house. Oh, I'm not easily frightened, you know that, but, but out in the hallway, it was almost entirely black. Luckily, I was near a light switch. I looked back over my shoulder, and I saw this huge, hulking shape for the first time. And I heard a voice. Or rather, the whisper of a voice. I couldn't distinguish the words, but that dark shape seemed to be moving towards me. My hand was on the light switch, and I turned it on. In a minute, the light flooded the hallway. The shape was gone. There was nothing there. I was alone again. As long as there's light, I know it can't hurt me. I know it can't reach me. You might have imagined it, you know. Of course, that's possible, but I'm sure I didn't. It was so real. So real, that shape in the darkness. It was the very essence of evil itself. There was an old man I knew of, a Dr. Hesevius. I'd heard that he knew quite a good deal about the supposed supernatural manifestations which had taken place in the world. I went to him to see if he knew anything that might explain the events of the story Elaine had told us. Yes, my good sir. What do you wish? I have an appointment with Dr. Hesilius. Oh, yes. Yes, he mentioned something about it. You are Mr. Drake. Yes. If you'll come inside. Thank you. Dr. Asilis is in the study. Please come with me. Doctor, a visitor for you. Oh, yes. Bring him in. You may go now. Yes, Doctor. Mr. 
Mr. Drake. Yes. Sit down, please, in that chair over there. Thank you, sir. Now, what is the nature of your visit to me? Well, I understand, Dr. Vesalius, that you have a great knowledge of the supernatural manifestations which have occurred on the Earth. Great knowledge, Mr. Drake? No, hardly that. I have only scratched the surface in my years of study. Perhaps I can help you, then again, perhaps I cannot. Well, may I tell you the story? By all means, my good sir. All right. Now, this didn't happen to me, Doctor, but to my fiancée. It seems that about six weeks ago, she was alone. When the light was on, the dark form disappeared. And that's the story, sir. As much of it as I can remember. Mm, I see. It's a strange tale to tell. I'm fully aware of that, Dr. Vesalius. You say she seemed to hear whispered voices? Yes, that's what she says. I see. A moment, please. I have a book in my file. Oh, yes. Here it is. This is the one. Yes. Perhaps I may be able to help you after all. Let me see. This is a very ancient book, Mr. Drake. I seem to remember... Yes. Here is an account of a happening such as you relate. And we shall live on the earth, and they shall not see us. Yes, it has been foretold by the ruler of the darkness. They who live by day, retire to sleep by night, shall never know that we walk with them, that we watch them, that we wait for our chance. Only in the night will they see us, for in the daylight we are not seen. Only in the night... When the darkness grows together and the forms of the shadow people are shaped from the blackness, they will know of us. They will know that we are their companions, for we are the shadow people. I knew I had read something similar to the story you have told me, Mr. Drake. Dr. Asilius, what can we do? Well, give me a little time. Let me see if I can find any more references to these uh, people of the darkness. One more thing, Mr. Drake. Yes. Be sure that your fiancé is never left alone at night. Be sure that there is some living thing, animal or human, which accompanies her every second of the night. For she is in danger, Mr. Drake. A terrible danger. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Shadow People. That night, the night of the day I had seen Cecilius, Elaine's mother died. She died in her sleep. When she failed to appear for breakfast, Elaine's father went upstairs to see what was wrong. When he entered her room, he discovered that she was dead. The family doctor couldn't explain it, for Elaine's mother had been in perfect health. A few weeks later, I was out of the house spending a weekend with them. I glanced at the clock on the mantel, and it showed 11. understand why Brian hasn't returned from town. Well, he said he had some extra work to catch up on. He told me this morning that he might be late. Well, 11 o'clock, I'm going upstairs. Glad you came out, David. 
Good seeing you again. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Well, don't stay up too late. See you both in the morning. substance to it. It sounded as if, as if it came from the darkness itself. No. No, I don't believe you. It's the truth, Elaine. There's nothing more I can do. We'll have to notify the police. Tell me it's not the truth, David. Tell me it's not true. Sorry, Elaine. I wish I could. The father's dead. After the burial, Dr. Hesselius got in touch with me. He said that he wanted to meet both Elaine and Brian, that he wanted to talk to the three of us. Accordingly, a few nights later, he came out to their house. Davis, will you tell me just when you saw the first manifestation? The night Brian was in Detroit. Now, Miss Davis, you have even seen this apparition in the company of other people, is that correct? Yes. The night at David's apartment. All right. Now I'll tell you what I think. You are in deadly danger, Miss Davis. These beings want to claim you. So far, they have had no success. Only in the darkness do they have the power. Little by little, step by step, they have been removing the obstacles in their way to reaching you. First your mother, and then your father, Miss Davis. Both died in the same fashion. In the darkness, death struck at them. Now tell me, do you feel their presence here in this room as I talk to you? Yes. Turn out the lights, Brian. Stand by the switch, if you please, Brian. If anything happens, turn the lights back on. All right. Dr. Vesilius, I don't... Do you want me to continue working with you? Yes, sir. All right, then. Brian, turn off the lights. Yes, doctor. The room now is in darkness, Miss Davis. Do you feel or see anything? No, I... Yes. Yes, I do. Do you see anything? Yes. Doctor, I don't... Be quiet, you fool. I know what I'm doing. In front of me. The darkness gathering together into a huge, terrible... Not only do you see us, Miss Davis, 
But everyone else in the room also will see the vague shapes forming themselves in the blackness. We do not want you, Dr. Hesilius. The girl we want. We advise you to drop this case. You'll only bring down the wrath of the shadow people upon your head. The girl. We want the girl. Do not stop us. Let us take her now. Turn on the light. They're gone. Miss Davis, are you all right? Yes. Yes, I am. Just as she said. The darkness. I, I saw it form into something, too. So did I. What are we going to do, Dr. Hesilius? At the present moment, I don't know. Much I do know. You must leave this house immediately. You must try to get out of their reach. I don't know if that is possible. I hope it is. I shall have to return to my home. I must learn if there is some manner by which we can defeat these creatures. For the moment, leave this house. Dispose of it in any manner you may see fit, but... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Leave this house. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Shadow People. spent the night in my apartment, the three of us. The following day, Brian and Elaine made arrangements to dispose of the house. In the afternoon, Dr. Hesilius called me and asked that I come to see him. David, I'm glad you're here. Anything new, Doctor? Yes and no. You realize, of course, that this spiritual manifestation is not new, that it has gone on for centuries. No, I wasn't aware of that. It's true, David. De Maupassant wrote uh, what was supposedly a fiction story about the manifestation, David. He called it... Uh, However, according to the information here on my desk, it was taken from an actual case history. Of course, he embroidered the story, added a few touches to something he didn't realize actually existed. But have you found anything with which we can fight them? Everything depends upon an answer I received from a colleague of mine in Paris, Dr. Henri Renault. I dispatched a telegram to him last night. Why hasn't he answered by now? There are certain things that must be done. It will take a few days, I'm afraid. We have to wait, David. There's nothing else we can do. In the next few days, the house was sold, and Brian and Elaine moved into a newer, more modern home a few miles from my apartment. 
Cecilia said it might take a few days for them to build up their power. I spent the night at the new house. The lights were left on and I watched for any unusual occurrence. In the daytime, I'd return to my apartment and get some sleep. About four days after Elaine and Brian moved into the new house, I was at home when Hesedius phoned me. Hello? David? Yes, Dr. Hesedius? I hate to tell you this, David. What's the matter? What's wrong? You were a step ahead of me, David. I just received word that Renault died or was killed at the very moment I sent the telegram to him. Step by step, they had outwitted us. For they had anticipated every move we'd make. Even Dr. Hesedius was at a loss as to what to do. He agreed to meet me at the Davis house. What did you want to see us about, Dr. Hesedius? Did you find out anything more? I'm sorry to say that I haven't. At the moment, I'm at a complete loss. I don't know what to do. But what did you want to see us about this evening? Merely to check, to see if anything else has happened. Miss Davis, have you seen or heard anything? Not in the house, only in my dreams. Your dreams? Yes. When I go to sleep at night, in my dreams, in the darkness, I see them. And it's grown worse, much worse. I was hoping that it would not have progressed so far. There has been no disturbance in this house, but now they disturb your sleep, Miss Davis. Now, you must stay awake for as long as you can. I want the three of you to move into my house. Perhaps that will give you more protection. That night, we moved over to the Cedius house. Perhaps Elaine would have more protection there. From there, we might be able to devise some plan of action, some way to beat those beings. For a few days, things were quiet. The shadow people seemed to have withdrawn. For a while, I thought that we might have succeeded in thwarting their purpose. Elaine no longer complained of troubled sleep. But that condition lasted for a few days only. About ten days later, they made themselves known and felt again. That night, we were in the study. When suddenly, Hesedius whirled around and... Elaine, what are you looking at? Outside the house. Right where the light leaves off, I see them. She's right, Dr. Hesedius. I can see them, too. What should we do, Doctor? Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? There's nothing we can do. We can't just... We can't do anything, Brian. Don't you understand that they have us at their mercy? The greatest man in my field was Henri Renault. If he could do nothing against them, what do you think we can do? He's right, Brian. There's nothing we can do. As long as the house remains lighted... Just so long will they remain outside. If the lights were... To... <laughs> that sounds like... When my father was killed. The same sound. We heard the same sound. The lights. What's happened to oh, the lights? I don't know. Be quiet, please. I thought of this emergency. A candle. That's right, Miss Davis. As long as this burns, this one candle will be safe. For they cannot advance into the light. They are limited by the darkness. As long as the candle burns, they will have to remain outside of this room. <laughs> Around you, in every room of the house, in the darkness outside, we are around you. This time you shall not escape. This time we will claim you. Take it easy, Brian. I 
Characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. prescribed death and Bela Lugosi's performance, we again hope to keep you in suspense. Professor Antonio Basile has a theory, but let him tell you about it. As a psychologist, I have worked out a theory, a theory I know to be sound. 
I contend that a person who has decided to kill himself can very easily be turned from this desire to the desire of taking the life of another. I can prove my theory. And if necessary, that is exactly what I will do. Yes, Professor Antonio Bastille has a theory. But only a theory. And he's worried about what his publisher will say. So he visits the editor, whose name is Hellman. Hellman finishes the manuscript and tosses it on the desk. Professor Basile leans forward eagerly and... Well, Hellman, what do you think? Professor Basile, it's purely conjecture, simply a theory, and I wouldn't advise publishing it. I worked on that theory for a long time. I'm positive of it. I know it'll work. Suppose it will. What good is it? What good have you accomplished if you can prove it'll work? <laughs> Are you laughing at me, Hellman? It's so silly. An ordinary human being has suffered reverses. He's sick of it all. He wants to leave it all behind. And you say he can be changed to want to kill someone else. I do. Self-destruction and the destruction of other life are closely related in the mind. The dividing line is very thin. It's ridiculous. And you won't publish it. Ranger would fire me. Why? He told me that, in his opinion, you should be in the asylum. Mr. Granger said that. Does he think I'm insane? <laughs> How do I know? Hellman, Mr. Granger didn't say that. It's you who thinks I'm crazy. You've never liked me. For some reason, you are trying to tear me down. Well, we'll see, Mr. Hellman. We'll see. Now, wait a minute. I'll show you whether my works are illogical. I show you whether I'm insane. Oh, calm down. <laughs> I'm going to make you eat those words. I know you don't like me, but I'm going to prove that my theory is sound. Good night. Wait a minute. Basil, wait. You wait, Hellman. You wait. Yes, wait, Hellman. Wait. Professor Basile, seething with resentment, rushes from the office and strides angrily down the street. Insane, huh? I'll prove my theory. I'll find the subject. I'll find someone who wants to take his own life. And so Basile goes home late for dinner. He finds a note from his wife, Myra, saying she's decided to attend the opera and will be home around 11.30. Then Professor Basile gets an inspiration. He goes to the bridge over the deep canyon. The bridge called Suicide. And strangely enough, he hasn't long to wait. As he stands against the railing in the fog, a figure appears a few feet beyond, stops, prepares to leap. Don't do it! Wait a minute! Listen. Huh? That's very silly. Let go of me! Oh, no. I couldn't do that. I need you. I don't need you. Don't you know this is uh, against the law? You're not an officer. You can't stop me. It's 500 feet to those tracks below. Hard steel rails. And don't believe what they all tell you about not being conscious of what happened. You'd know. People don't die instantly. Let loose. They lie in agony for minutes and sometimes for an hour. It's a horrible death, I know. How do you know? I'm a doctor. Doctor? Yes. I can tell you much simpler ways, much less painful ways and quicker. You're a nice young girl. An intelligent girl. 
students want it to happen this way. Maybe after I talk to you a while, you wouldn't want to do this at all. No? No. But come on. Let's talk it over. Maybe a few minutes talk will change the entire picture for you. What could you do to help me? If you'll come, I'll tell you. There's a motive bag of your wanting to do this, and I'd like to know what it is. Nothing doing. Haven't you any relatives? Any loved ones you'd like to do something for? Yes. Then if you'll talk with me for a while, maybe I can find my way clear to help those people. Come in, please. Well, what do you want to know? Now sit down first. Are you hungry? No, I'm not that broke. This isn't poverty. I knew that. I could tell by your clothes. Now, now first, why did you come here? Why? Why, because you talked me into it. <laughs> See, you're not afraid of me? Afraid? In my frame of mind. What could I lose? Suppose I told you that I really brought you here to kill you. Kill me? <laughs> you know, you're a very pretty girl, don't you? Yeah. That doesn't always mean so much. The right man, it might. That's what I thought. But I found out it didn't mean a thing. Ah. Then it was because of a man. I knew it. Really? How did you guess? I'm a student of psychology. I'm Professor Antonio Basile. I see. And you want to know what makes me tick? You want to know the reason behind my action tonight? That's right. I would like to know what happened to make you want to kill yourself. Suicide is a mental aberration. Yeah? I'd like to know what preceded the decision to destroy yourself. And what you thought about until the moment I stopped you on the bridge. What good will that do me? You said you weren't broke, but you also said you had some loved ones you'd like to do something for. I meant I wasn't broke to the point of being hungry. I have a few dollars. But you suggested help for someone in larger terms. Yes, I did. Who is the loved one? My mother. You are her only means of support? Yes. And you intend to kill yourself? Yes. That's being selfish, isn't it? Selfish? Yes. You are concentrating solely on self. You think so? What else? The first law of human nature is self-preservation, right? I suppose so. The second law is the preservation of family. Yeah. So you decide to deny the first law and destroy yourself. And as a consequence, deny the second and leave your mother alone and in need. You indicate a form of insanity. What would be normal? To destroy the other person. The one who has done you wrong. Have you hurt him? No. Then the one who has done wrong should be the one to suffer. You have no legal recourse? Legal recourse? No, I haven't, I'm sorry to say. And you would kill yourself to let your poor mother suffer because of the wrong of another. Why shouldn't he be the one to suffer? I suppose you're right. Why shouldn't he? What happened after all? Why not tell me about it? Were you married? No. Never seemed to find time to get around to marriage. What's your name? Gladys. Gladys Tanner. How long had you known him? 
Almost four years. And you always thought he meant to marry you? Yes. Until three weeks ago. Yes? On July 1st, he had to leave town for a week on business. Said he was going to Kansas City. When he came back, he seemed to be too busy to see me. Then a week ago, I found a snapshot along with several others in his desk in his home. May I see it? Certainly. It's a picture of him and another woman. But the picture was not taken in Kansas City. It was? No. It was taken on the beach at Atlantic City. And it's dated by the finisher, July 3rd. Since he returned, he's refused to see me. Yesterday, he finally said he didn't care to see me anymore. But I'd better forget him. But it isn't so easy as that, is it? No. I figured I'd done something. And blame myself. Do you... Uh, do you know this blonde woman in this uh, snapshot? No. Then it must be a woman uh, he has met uh, recently. You've known him for, for four years. I don't think you are to blame. He's the one in the wrong, and he should be made to suffer. How? You were going to kill yourself. Why should you? Kill him instead. He double-crossed you. He deserves it. Now, let me go a little deeper into the situation. Whenever a person has reached the conclusion to take his life... sure you have made up your mind, Miss Tanner? Positive. Now, if you're careful, you won't be caught. No. But whether you are or not, I'm giving you this check for a thousand dollars made out to cash to be sent to your mother only after the man is dead. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What is his name on this pad? There you are. I will know what has happened by the newspapers. Now you will be told payment until I learn that you have gone through with it. It'll happen tonight. Very well. You are sure? You are determined? Absolutely. Nothing. Very good. But just what would happen if I did get caught? You won't get caught if you follow my instructions, I know. Now, here is a small revolver. It'll fit easier in your purse. That's all you need. Be sure to wipe your fingerprints off. 
and leave the gun near the body. Well, goodbye, Dr. Basile. Goodbye, Gladys, and good luck. Professor Basile watches Gladys as she crosses the street to the dimly lighted bus stop. Then he rushes to his car and drives away. A few minutes later, he comes to a stop at Hellman's house. Hellman, the editor who ridiculed his theory. Just a minute. Oh. Hello, Basile. Good evening, Herman. Thought I'd drop out to have a little chat with you. Well, why this time of night? Kind of late, isn't it? Eleven. Didn't think that was late for you. No? Uh, come in. Thanks. Sit down. What's on your mind? I want to talk to you about my theory you ridicule so definitely. My theory about suicide. Oh. Well, I just don't believe it, that's all. And I said I'd prove it, didn't I? Yes, but what are you getting at? It's going to be proved. My theory is going to be proved tonight. Oh, that's fine. Go right ahead and prove it. I don't like you, Hellman. I never liked you. And I know you don't like me. I can't help that, Basile. What are you staring at? Is there someone here with you? Certainly not. Why? That's a woman's purse on the Davenport. Hmm? Oh, my secretary dropped by earlier this evening with the manuscript. She must have forgotten it. She's not here now? Of course not. Then I'll continue. I found a subject. A girl who was ready to commit suicide because a man jilted at her. In a few hours, I was successful in changing her thoughts from suicide to homicide, and she is going to kill the man tonight. What do you think of that? There may be a dozen murders tonight. Ah, but you'll know which one I mean. You'll know about this murder. What do you mean? Because I'm going to tell you who the victim is going to be. You know who the intended victim is? Why don't you stop it? <laughs> You're insane, Basile, hopelessly insane. You think so, Herman? The whole idea is mad, too utterly ridiculous for words. <laughs> no sane man would ever think of such a useless, senseless idea. And for heaven's sake, stop laughing. I'm thinking about the victim when he learns. Who is the victim? Martin Harriman. Me? Yes, you. <laughs> I don't believe you. You will this time. Who is this girl? I know no girl who'd want to kill me. This one does. Now. Oh, nonsense. However, I wouldn't put a past you to hire someone to do something like this. No, no, this girl is no fake. This girl is serious, deadly serious. You probably hypnotized some poor woman, figuring she'd never remember what happened. Oh, Herman, you underestimate me. Maybe I do underestimate your evil mind. But believe Put me. up your hands, Herman. Get away from the desk. I'll just take care of that gun, Hellman. That's better. Well, since when did you start carrying a gun, Basil? I a gun? Don't be silly. This isn't a gun in my pocket. It's just my pipe. See? <laughs> well, what do you hear, Hellman? Well, nothing. Oh, yes, you do. I heard it, too. A sound on the porch. I leave now. The back way. I put your gun in the kitchen. And I'll be very careful to remove all my 
fingerprint. You insane fool. Oh, fancy you. You, Hellman, you are going to help prove my theory. <laughs> Good night, Hellman. Crazy devil. I'll have him locked up before he gets across town. Good evening, Mr. Hellman. Huh? How did you get in here? Through the patio door. What do you want? I wanted to talk to you. Very strangely. <laughs> You're just imagining things. And what are you doing here? I wanted to tell you something. Yeah? What? When you first indicated to me that you were through with me, I was terribly hurt. I thought all along that we were to be married. I couldn't understand. I tried and tried to think of something I'd done to cause our breakup. And then I happened to find this snapshot in your desk. Snapshot? Take a look at it. Kansas City. No, Atlantic City, New Jersey. You and a blonde. And the date is stamped on the back. A business trip. Ha! Well, what about it? I just wanted you to know that you weren't so slick. I wanted you to know that I knew about the blonde. That I knew you'd lied. Now that you've told me, what good does it do you? A lot of good. First, I thought you came here for money. How could you think such a thing? Well, I think you'd better go now. <laughs> I'm going. Goodbye, Morton. And good luck in your new venture. What venture? This one. Gladys. Gladys! And wish me luck in mine. Gladys stands staring a moment at the body of Hellman, then wipes off the gun, drops it to the floor, takes the professor's check from her purse, steps to Hellman's desk and writes the note. Then she puts the note in an envelope with the check, addresses it, stamps it, turns out the lights, and steps out into the dark street. At the corner, she drops the envelope in the mailbox and disappears. Professor Basile heard the shots. His theory worked. Hellman will torment him no more. The perfect crime. So he can go home to his wife now and go to sleep. Myra. Myra. Huh? What? Oh, oh, Antonio. What are you doing asleep on the Davenport? Do you know what time it is? It must be after midnight. I've been waiting for you. How was opera? Oh, fair. Nothing to brag about. Who sang the lead? Bill Chiari. He wasn't very good. Bill Chiari? Mm-hmm. He's a poor old fellow. A fellow? I thought they were uh, doing Ida tonight. No, they switched because someone was ill. They just as soon have stayed home. Have a nice cup, Myra? No, thanks. I'm tired. I think I'll go to bed. I belong presently. Good night. <laughs> Then the night passes and the morning comes. The professor rises cheerfully and prepares for breakfast. Then... I'll get it, Myra. 
Professor Basile. Yes. May we come in? We'd like to talk with you. Of course. What is it you want? Is your wife in? Yes. We'd like to see her, too. Myra. But what's this all about? What is it, Antonio? These men are from detective headquarters. They want to talk to us. Really? What about? May I ask where you were last night, Mrs. Basile? Certainly. I went to the opera. What time did you get home? Oh, I imagine it was around 11 or shortly after. Mm-hmm. Were you at home last evening, Professor? Well, I was at the club and got home about 12.30. By the way, uh, do you know Morton Hellman? Certainly. What about him? He's been murdered. Murdered? Good Lord. When? Around midnight last night. I found him this morning. How terrible. Why, I've known him for years. He was editor-in-chief of the company publishing my writings. I'm a psychologist, you know. Yes, we know. But uh, what do you want to know from us? We weren't connected socially with Hellman, uh, just in business. Did uh, you know him, Mrs. Basile? Yes, yes, I knew him very slightly. Do either of you know of anyone who'd have reason to kill him? Uh, certainly not. Everyone thought highly of him. Did you ever hear of a girl named Gladys Tanner? Lady Tanner? No. Did you know of a Gladys Tanner, Mrs. Basile? No. Is this your purse, Mrs. Basile? Why, of course it is. That's the one I gave you last Christmas, Myra. Oh, yes. I must have lost it downtown. Where did you find it, Lieutenant? At Hellman's home. Hellman's home. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, how in the world? Good heavens, but... We found it on the sofa. Well, I can't imagine how it could get there. And this is the revolver that killed Hellman, found on the floor beside him. What? No fingerprints on it, however. But... May I see it? Why, Myra, this is your gun. I bought this for you two years ago when I went on the lecture tour. Yes, I think it's mine, but... It just doesn't make sense. Did you have the gun in your purse when you lost it, Lyra? Well, I... Perhaps I did. I'm so confused now. I can't remember. I think, Myra. I think it is, it is terrible. Oh, I know. Oh, dear, I feel ill. Did you ever fire this gun? Yes, once last year up in the mountains. I wanted to see how it worked. Ever reloaded? No, I never reloaded it. I, I just didn't think about it. Maybe I did put it in my purse. Why, I don't know. And, and whoever found the purse may have used the gun to... Oh, I just can't seem to think. This gun misfired on the first two shots. The other three killed Hellman. This is the most amazing piece of coincidence I ever heard of. Why would my wife want to do such a thing? Why should she get to Hellman? She hardly knew him. Are you sure about that, Professor? Of course. Well, sorry to say that I don't believe her. What? This is ridiculous. This is going to be a shock to you, Professor, but here's a snapshot we found on Hellman's desk. Taken in Atlantic City last July. Good heavens. Why? This is you, Myra. You and Hellman. You were at your mother's in Florida in July. <laughs> Myra, look at me. What does this mean? I can't. I can't. And I can't believe such a thing. May I have the purse, the gun, and the photo? Thank you. I'm sorry, but I'll have to take her down to headquarters. But I didn't kill him. I didn't. I wouldn't. 
I love you. <laughs> Myra. You better pull yourself together. You'll have to go back. You'll want photos and fingerprints? Yes. Better get it ready, Myra. <laughs> Certainly looks bad for her. Afraid it does. Looks like an open and shut case. Oh, uh, will you come along too, Professor? Oh, certainly. And so it all worked out beautifully. Not quite as the Professor had planned. But then he changed his plan from the moment when Gladys Tanner showed him the snapshot taken in Atlantic City. And he realized that the girl's fiancé was Hellman and the blonde was Myra, his wife. He had no intention of allowing Gladys Tanner to kill Hellman until he saw that snapshot. And when he recognized Myra's purse in Hellman's home, he decided to let Gladys kill him and the blame be placed on Myra. The perfect crime. But several hours later, after fingerprints and many questions, the professor is just about to be dismissed when Sergeant Rankin steps into the room and speaks quietly to Lieutenant Davis. What is it, Rankin? I stayed at the seal's place, as you said. Well? A few minutes ago, a special delivery letter came for the professor. This will knock your eye out. Read it. Well, right. ah, fits perfectly with the writing we were trying to make out on Helm's desk letter. Professor, here's a letter sent special delivery to you a few minutes ago, postmarked last night. Read it. Dear Professor Basile, your theory worked a certain degree. You convinced me I should kill him. Uh, I should kill him, uh, but when that gun you gave me uh, misfired twice, I, I almost quit. Go ahead, Professor. Read on. Then as I looked at him on the floor, the feeling of self-destruction came back. I'm going ahead with my plan. Here's your check. I won't need it. Besides, I lied to you. I lost my mother long ago. Better luck next time. That is Tanner. And a half hour ago, they found her body beneath Suicide Bridge. Well, Professor, your perfect crime has failed. Failed? Yes. Failed. Wonderful but... setup on paper, but your theory backfired and you're up for murder. But I didn't kill him. But you planned it and you're as guilty as Gladys. She paid her penalty. Now it's your turn. No. No. I won't. I won't be hanged. Never. Rankin, And now the doctor lies on the sidewalk, 17 stories below. His entire theory works in reverse. Network Replay continues after the news to one. Everyone who has traveled over eastern England knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded. The rather dank buildings, usually in the Italian style, surrounded with parks of some 80 to 100 acres. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house. It is Castringham Hall in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story. One feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree. 
growing within half a dozen yards of the wall and almost or quite touching the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place. At any rate, it had well nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year, the district in which the house is situated was the scene of a number of witch trials. Castringham contributed a victim to the extortions. Mrs. Mothersole was her name. And she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. Efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew Fell. Sir Matthew, will you tell the court, please, what you saw regarding Mrs. Mothersole on the evenings that you mentioned? Uh, well, on three different occasions from my window, I watched her. Uh, uh, Mrs. Mothersole, at the full of the moon, gathering sprigs from the ash tree near my house. Uh, she had climbed into the branches and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife. And uh, as she did so, she seemed to be talking to herself. Uh, on each occasion, I, I did my best to capture the woman. But she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise I had made. All I could see when I got down to the garden was a hare running across the path in the direction of the village. And on the third night, I followed her at what speed I could. I went straight to Mrs. Mothersole's house. I had to wait a quarter of an hour battering at her door, and when she came out, she was very cross and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed. And as I had no good explanation to offer, I had to apologize rather embarrassingly. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Mrs. Mothersole was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial with five or six more unhappy creatures. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery. But Mrs. Mothersole was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Oh, her poisonous rage did so work upon the bystanders, yea, even upon the hangman, that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the very living aspect of a mad devil. Uh, yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law. Only she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and Aye, aye, the mere thought of it pried inwardly upon my mind for six months after. 
However, all that Mrs. Mothersole is reported to have said was seemingly meaningless words. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castrium Hall, the bathroom. There will be guests at the hall. Sir Matthew Fell, then Deputy Sheriff, was present at the execution and was not unimpressed at the bearing of the woman. He shared certain misgivings over the whole business with the vicar of his parish as they rode from the scene of the gallows. I'll say it again, Mr. Crome. My evidence at the trial was not given willingly. I'm not at all specially infected with the witch-finding mania. But I declare that I could not give any other account of the matter than, than what I had given. And I could not possibly have been mistaken in what I saw. Ah, but the whole transaction has been repugnant to me. Now, I am a man who likes to be on pleasant terms with those about me. Yes, those are my sentiments, Mr. Crone. And the good vicar applauded them, as any reasonable man would have done, and was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. When Mr. Crone thought of starting for home about half-past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a turn on the graveled walk at the back of the house. They were in sight of the ash tree, which I described as growing near the windows of the building. When Sir Matthew stopped, uh, Mr. Crome, uh, look there a moment. Where, Sir Matthew? Um, at the ash tree there. Uh, look, what is that that runs up and down the trunk of it? It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now. Ah, oh, yes, I see some sort of, of moving creature. Uh, what can you make of it, Mr. Crome? Nothing of its color in this moonlight, Sir Matthew. Ah, but now it's gone. Uh, was it a squirrel? Oh, well, for an instant there was a sharp outline. And I could swear... Though it sounds foolish, that squirrel or not, it had more than four legs. Aye, more than four legs, Sir Matthew. Next day, 
Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven, nor yet at eight. Hereupon, the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. When the door was at last opened from the outside, they found their master dead and black. Mr. Crone came as quickly as he could to the hall and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. Many years later, Mr. Crone's notes regarding this incident were found among his papers. They showed how genuine a respect and sorrow he felt for Sir Matthew. And they also threw some light upon the common beliefs of the time. There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber. But the casement stood open, as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel of about a pint measure, and tonight had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Berry, Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterward declared upon his oath before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of a venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbors of poison. The body was very much disordered as it lay in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable a conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what is as yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful design in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder, was this, that the women which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing, being both sad persons and very well respected in their mournful profession, came to me in great pain and distress, both of mind and body, saying what was indeed confirmed upon the first view. We had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with our naked hands than we felt a violent smart and aching in our palms. I am the swelling, oh, the swelling from the palms to the elbows so immoderately. The pain still continuing that for many weeks afterwards we were forced to lay by the exercise of our calling. And yet no mark to be seen on the skin. No mark seen on the skin. Upon hearing this, I sent for the physician, and we made as careful a proof as we were able by the help of a small magnifying lens of the condition of the skin on this part of the body. But we could not detect any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks, which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced, remembering that ring of Pope Borgia with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. So much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse. As to what I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, 
and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of value therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size in which my friend used nightly and upon his first rising to read a set portion. And I taking it up, not without a tear duly paid to him, it came into my thoughts to make trial of that old and by many accounted superstitious practice of drawing the swords. I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me. Yet, as the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be searched out, I set down the results. In the case, it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence than my own. I made, then, three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first these words from St. Luke, um, chapter 13, verse 7. Cut it down. And in the second, uh, Isaiah, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 20. It shall never be inhabited. It shall never be inhabited. And upon the third experiment, uh, uh, Job... Chapter 39, uh, verse 30. My young ones also suck up blood. My young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crome's paper. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth. His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates. It is to be mentioned, though the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died. Nor, indeed, was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735. And I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase as time went on. The second Sir Matthew was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. So large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Mrs. Mothersole. 
a certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed. And the feeling of surprise and indeed disquiet was very strong when it was found that though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside of it of body, bones, or dust. One morning, it was in 1754, Sir Richard woke after a night of discomfort. Mrs. Chiddock, I can certainly not sleep in that room again. Oh, sir? The chimney smoked persistently. Yet it was so cold that the fire had to be kept up. Furthermore, something had so rattled about the window in the wind that no man could get a moment's peace. No, I'll certainly not sleep in that room again, Mrs. Chiddock. I shall select a new room this morning. As you say, sir, there's the fine large study across the hall, if I may suggest. Uh, no. No, it has an eastern aspect. I must have a room with a western lookout so that the sun does not wake me early. And the room must be out of the way. I don't want servants forever passing the door. Well, Sir Richard, you know there is but one room like that in the house. Oh? Which may that be? Why, sir, that is Sir Matthew's room, the west chamber. Well, put me in there. I lie there tonight. But no one has slept there these 40 years. The air has hardly been changed since Sir Matthew died there. Well, then, it's time the air be changed. Come along, Mrs. Chiddock. I'll see the chamber at least. So it was opened. And indeed, the smell was very close and earthy. Sir Richard crossed to the window, threw the shutters back, and flung open the casement. The view was almost entirely blocked off by the ash tree. Oh, sir, the tree. It makes the room so oppressive, so dampish, sir. Well, we'll shortly take care of that. Air the room, Mrs. Chiddock, all today. And move my bed furniture in in the afternoon. When the Bishop of Kilmore arrives, you can put him in my old room. But, sir, there's a fearfulness about this room. It's the very room... Yes, yes, it is here my grandfather died. Make no difficulties about it, Mrs. Chiddock. I do not wish to listen to any more. Be about the airing. Be about the airing. In the afternoon, the Bishop of Kilmore arrived. He had risked the approaching storm in order to have an hour with Sir Richard before the arrival of the other guests. The Bishop had brought with them a manuscript come upon while exploring the papers and other remains of the once vicar of Castringham. And for the first time, Sir Richard was confronted with the enigmatical sortes biblicae of Mr. Crome, which you have already heard. They amused him a great deal. Well, my grandfather's Bible gave one prudent piece of advice, cut it down. That stands for the ash tree. May rest assured I shall not neglect it. Such a nest of catars and agues was never seen. I was wondering, sir, uh, your parlour here contains the family books. Ah, yes, I wonder whether the old prophet is there yet. Now, let's see. Um, the Bibles are kept over here. And I know the one, the thick, dumpy... Ah, yes, 
here it is. Look here. Look here. Sure enough, the inscriptions. The inscriptions on the flyleaf. To Matthew Fell. From his loving godmother, Anne Aldis. <clears throat> the 2nd of September, 1659. Well, well, your lordship. It would be no bad plan to test him again, eh? I'll wager we'll get several family names from the Chronicles. Uh, uh, let's see now. Uh, let's see, what do we have here? Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Later came the other guests. Dinner at five, wine, cards, supper, and dispersal to bed. Next morning, Sir Richard is disinclined to take his gun with the rest. He talks instead with the Bishop of Kilmore. As the two were walking along the terrace and talking over certain alterations and improvements for the house, the Bishop suddenly pointed to the window of the west room. Uh, you could never get one of my Irish flock to occupy that room, Sir Richard. Ah? Uh, why is that, my lord? It is, in fact, my own room. Uh, well, our Irish peasantry will always have it that it brings the worst of luck to sleep near an ash tree. And your fine growth of ash is not two yards from your chamber window. Perhaps it has given you a touch of its quality already. You do not seem, if I may say it, so much the fresher for your night's rest as your friends would like to see you. Yes, that or something else, it has true cost me my sleep from twelve to four, my lord. Ah, but the tree is to come down tomorrow, so I shall not hear much more from it. Ah, I applaud your determination. It can hardly be wholesome to have the air you breathe, strained as it were, through all that leafage. Your lordship is right there, I think. But I had not my window open last night. It was rather the noise that went on. No doubt from the twigs sweeping the glass that kept me open-eyed. Oh, I, I think that can hardly be Sir Richard. Here, uh, you, you can see it from this point. None of those nearest branches can touch your casement. Unless there were a gale and there was none of that last night. Or they missed the panes by a foot. No such truth. What then will it be, I wonder, that scratched and rustled so? Aye, and cover the dust on my sill uh, with lines and marks. Ah, well, sir, uh, uh, might it be uh, the rats? The rats that must have come up through the ivy. Of course, of course, the rats. I it was the rats. So the day passed quietly, and night came, and the party dispersed to their rooms, and wished Sir Richard... A better night. And now we are in his bedroom, with the light out and the squire in bed. The night outside is still and warm, so the window stands open. There is very little light about the bedstead, but there is a strange movement there. It seems as if Sir Richard were moving his head, rapidly, to and fro, with only the slightest possible sound. And now you would guess, so deceptive is the half-darkness, that he had several heads, round and brownish, 
which move back and forward, even as low as his chest. It is a horrible illusion. Is it nothing more? Ah, there, something drops off the bed with a soft plump, like a kitten, and is out of the window in a flash. Another, four of them. And after that, there is quiet again. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As with Sir Matthew, so was Sir Richard. Dead and black in his bed. A pale and silent party of guests and servants gathered under the window when the news was known. Ominous guesses were hazarded. Italian poisoners, popish emissaries, infected the air. But the Bishop of Kilmore looked up at the ash tree. He noticed that a white tomcat was crouching in the lower boughs, looking down the hollow which years had gnawed in the trunk. It was watching something inside the tree with great interest. Suddenly it got up and crammed over the hole. Oh, well now, Kitty, what do you see there inside the ash? Oh, careful, oh, careful of the edge there. Careful now. But the bit of edge on which it stood gave way. And the cat went slithering in. Everyone looked up at the noise of the fall. It is known to most of us that a cat can cry. But few of us have heard, I hope, such a yell as came out of the trunk of the great ash. Two or three screams there were, and then the slight and muffled noise of some commotion or struggling was all that came. But Lady Mary Harvey fainted outright and the housekeeper stopped her ears and fled till she fell on the terrace.
the Bishop of Kilmore and Sir William Kentfield stayed. There is something more than we know of in that tree, my lord. I'm for an instant search. I agree with you there, Sir William. We must get to the bottom of this. The secret of these terrible deaths is there, in the ash tree. A ladder was brought, and one of the gardeners went up, and looking down the hollow could detect nothing but a few dim indications of something moving. They got a lantern, and the gardener let it down by a rope cautiously. They saw the yellow light upon his face as he bent over, and suddenly the face became struck with an incredulous terror and loathing. Oh! He fell back from the ladder, letting the lantern fall inside the tree. Oh, quick, Sir William, catch the man. Oh, what has he seen? What has he seen? He's in a dead faint, my lord. It will be some time, I fear, before any word can be got from him. Oh, oh, but, but look to the tree. Look to the tree, my lord. It's a flame. The bystanders made a ring at some yard's distance, and Sir William and the bishop sent men to get what weapons and tools they could, for clearly whatever might be using the tree as its lair would be forced out by the fire. And so it was. First, at the fork, we saw a round body, covered with fire the size of a man's head, appear very suddenly then uh, seemed to collapse and fall back. Uh, this five or six times. Uh, then a smaller ball leapt into the air and fell on the grass, where after a moment uh, it lay still. Uh, we went as near as we dared to it and saw. Look, your lordship, it's an enormous spider. The remains, venous and seared, of an enormous spider. And as the fire burned, more terrible bodies like that began to break out from the trunk. And it was seen that these were covered with grayish hair. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castringham Hall, the bathroom. the ash burned, and until it fell to pieces, the men stood about it and from time to time killed the brutes as they darted out. Uh, at last, there was a long interval when none appeared, and we cautiously moved in and examined the roots of the tree. We found below it a rounded, hollow place in the earth, wherein were two or three bodies of these creatures that had been plainly smothered by the smoke. And what is to me more curious, at the side of this den, against the wall, was crouching the anatomy or skeleton of a human being. 
with the skin dried upon the bones, having some remains of black hair. It was pronounced by those that later examined it to be undoubtedly the body of a woman, and clearly dead for a period of 50 years. body. When the switch went in, there was a whining noise. And then a white light shot out of it. I know you won't believe this. When it hit the body, it, it went all soft. It was just like the bones had gone out of it. It just went all soft and kind of poured off the chair and onto the floor. Midnight. The witching hour when the night is darkest. Our fears the strongest, and our strength at its lowest ebb. Midnight, when the graves gape open and death strikes. How? You'll learn the answer in just a minute in The Heavy Death. Mystery and Terror by Radio's Masters of the Macabre. Our story, written by Robert Newman, is a weird and fantastic nightmare called The Heavy Death. A road just outside the small town of Medford. Running up at his face, white and terror-stricken in the moonlight, is a small, slight man. He pauses every once in a while. His breath whistling in his nostrils, listening, then runs on again. Finally, seeing the two green lights of the state police barracks, he moans oh. with relief and runs in. Oh, thank God there's somebody here. I was afraid. Look, officer, you got to get me away from here fast. Huh? Yeah, just a minute, Mac. Take it easy. Not easy. You'll be here any minute coming after me. i got to get away, I tell you. And I'm get... telling you to take it easy. Just wait till I get through talking to Dr. Carden Dr. here. Dr. Carden? Are you Dr. Carden lives in the big white house near the river? Why, yes. Well, then you can tell him it's true. Otherwise, he won't believe me. Nobody will. It was you who swiped the big glass thing from, from your laboratory. A Geiger counter? You stole it? Well, he made me do it. Oh, now, whoa. This is getting interesting. That's why Dr. Carden's here. You know anything about his assistant? Young chap named Matson? Yeah. He's dead. He killed him. Matson? Matson dead? better start from the beginning. Tell us the whole story. Yeah, but I didn't even read time. He'd be coming after me and... Oh, okay. Like I said, you won't believe it. My name's Sullivan. They call me Shell because I'm a come-on with Brian's giant carnival. Weight guessing is my racket, but I turn my hand at almost anything, you know, Shell, game three, card money. Well, we hit town about, about ten days ago for a three-day stand. The first two nights was pretty quiet. The third one was when it happened there. There was a pretty fair crowd around, and I was warming him up for some weight guessing, with maybe some side bets, when he came up. Okay, folks, okay, step up, step 
for Perry F. And let Hawkey Sullivan dish your weight. A cupid doll about three pounds off either way. Now, what do you say, lady? Your weight's not like your age, you know. Ha, <laughs> ha. It always shows. <laughs> what about you, sir? Guess your weight? Do you really think you can? Do I think? Ha, <laughs> ha. Listen to him, folks. You bet your sweet life, brother. Oh, I have already. The question is, will you bet your sweet life? What? What do you mean? Look, do you want me to guess your weight or not, huh? On the terms I outlined, why, yes. I'll be glad to have you try. Try, try, Sissy. Okay, folks, here we go. Now, let's see. Mm-hmm. A big man, a solid man. Hefty pair of arms on him. I say, uh, 195 pounds. 195. And three pounds off either way, and you get a cupid out. Now, just sit right down here on the scale. There you are. Hey. Hey, what goes on here? You broke my scale. Yes, it only goes up to 350 pounds. 300? What have you got in your pockets? Would you like to look? Nah. No, I don't know how you did it, but more power to you, brother. When I lose, that pay with a smile. Well, here's your cubie. Thank you. No, that's not what we bet. What? What do you mean? I think you know what I mean. The carnival closes in about an hour. I'll be waiting. walking off slow and heavy. The crowd stood around for a couple of minutes, gaping at the broken scale and talking. Then they all decided it was some kind of a gag and went on and forgot about it. For me, I couldn't forget about it. Somehow I didn't think it was a gag. There was something about him, the way he moved, the way he talked, it scared the pants off me. I hung around for a while, getting my stuff together, and then I looked up Rube Thomas. Rube's a big guy. Used to be a wrestler, and he was just closing up his Wheel of Fortune. Hi, Rope. How are they going? Uh, not bad for one horse town. How's it you? Oh, not too bad. Well, some wise guy busted my scale. Huh? Busted your scale? Yeah. Uh, well, Rube, that's why I come over. He was a queer duck. I just couldn't figure his pitch, but he, he said something about waiting for me when he closed up, so I thought... So, could... so you're taught maybe you should have some protection walking down to the station. Yeah. <laughs> that's a hot one. What is? Yeah, on your side beds. Well... Don't worry about it. Ain't no one gonna lay a finger on you when you're with Rube Thomas. Help Rube take down the wheel. But even then, we were about the last to leave the fairgrounds. We went out through the main gate. It was pretty dark, but I wasn't worried anymore. I'd never yet seen anybody Rube couldn't handle. Then I heard footsteps. Slow and heavy ones. And then... There you are. I've been waiting for you. Yeah? No kidding? Just a guy? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, Bob. What's the pitch? What's your racket? Racket? There's no racket. Your friend and I had a bet. I've come to collect. Yeah? Well, I'll tell you a funny thing about carnivals. When we pull up stakes and get ready to go, all bets are off. I'm afraid this one can't be called off. You see, I need him. You need him? Yes. You bet your life. Remember? And you lost. You mean you... Oh, you're nuts. There are people who have thought so, but I'm not. Shall we go? No. No, I ain't gonna... Rube! Take it easy, Shell. I told you all bets was off, mister. Now you're gonna blow am I gonna have to get rough with you. I wouldn't if I were you. No? Well, here's one just for luck. Oh, oh my hand. I warned you. Oh, you... I'll break your bloody neck up. Oh, yeah. I'm 
Sorry, I didn't want to hurt you. You won't believe this. Like you probably won't believe what happened afterwards. He didn't swing or anything. He just kind of dropped his fist on Rube's head. And he smashed in his skull like it hit him with a lead pipe. Good logic. He killed him. Yes. Shall we go? No, no, I... Look at me. Into my eyes. That's right. Now remember this. You're mine. Mine to do it exactly as I wish. And you do exactly what I wish. Do you understand? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Good. Then let's go. Something happened. Happened to me then and there. Something I ain't over yet. It wasn't just that I was scared, more scared than I've ever been in my life. It was something else. When I looked into his eyes, it was like that just plain didn't count. That no one or nothing did. Then I just had to do whatever he wanted, whatever he said. We got in his car and drove to his to your place, Doc, and we stopped in front of it, and he pointed at a kind of low building behind it. That is Dr. Carden's laboratory. He has something there I need, a Geiger counter. You're going in and get it for me. You mean swipe it? Yes. It would take too much time to make one of my own, and as I said, I need it. Now, it's a long glass tube about this size with filaments inside it. Yeah, but suppose somebody sees me. Suppose somebody comes... Carden's away in Washington with that childish atomic energy condition of theirs. There's only Maps and his assistant, and he must be sleeping. If he should try and stop you, well, you'll have to take care of him, but remember, I want that Geiger counter. Like I said, it was like I was numb. Didn't have a mind of my own. I did it. Found an open window. Went in and got what he wanted. Brought it out to him. Didn't say a word. He just put it in the back of the car and we drove away. It was about a quarter of twelve when we got to his place. Big rambling house at the foot of a mountain. He took me around the back to a kind of iron door and... Well, it was... It was like out of Buck Rogers, the 25th century. Big glass tubes, dynamos, wires. He must have noticed me staring because he said... Go ahead, look around. There's equipment here that doesn't exist any place else in the world. Yeah, but... What's it all for? And if I told you, you'd be even more frightened than you are now. By the way, what's your name? Sullivan. Shell Sullivan. I'm Dr. Vance. Dr. Brian Vance. Doctor? Of nuclear physics. Without doubt, the greatest scientist in the world today. Do you know anyone else who has been able to convert most of the elements of the human body into the heavy isotopes? Uh, look, I don't know what you mean, but is that... Yes. That is why not only my weight, but the entire atomic mass of my body's... What's that? Sounds like a car. Yes, but coop. Oh, Matson. Must have heard you in the laboratory. Followed us. Well, I was as quiet as I could be honest. Yeah, there's nothing to be worried or excited about. Hello, Matson. Vance. I should have known it was you. Should have known what was me? A Stolar Geiger. You've done an awful lot of strange things in your career, Vance, but this time you've gone just a little too far. This time, I've got you dead to rights. I'm afraid it's just the other way around, Matson. What do you mean? What? Vance. You don't really think I'd let you or anyone interfere with what I'm doing, do you? You... You killed him, you... Of course. Drag him over there out of the way. There's a certain experiment I'm just about ready to try, and his body will come in very handy. 
Sullivan staring at him in abject horror, Dr. Vance turns away from the body on the floor, lumbers over to one of his instruments, and begins examining it. And far away, in the town's church steeple, the clock strikes twelve for... Murder at midnight. Just a moment later, Sergeant Rowe and Dr. Carden are staring incredulously at Sullivan as he pauses for a moment in his terrifying story. Then the trooper says, We did find Thomas's body out by the fairground, but it was an accident. Hit by a truck or something. You mean this Vance killed Madsen just like that? Shot him without turning a hair. Uh, sure sounds to me like... Dr. Carden, what do you think? I don't know, Sergeant. I do know Vance... I knew that he had a laboratory somewhere near here. Well, it's true that he probably knows as much about nuclear physics as anyone in the world. We tried several times to get him to work with us during the war, but he laughed at us, said that what we were doing was childish. Yes, but, but, but this other business is changing himself, making himself heavy. Yeah, even his voice was heavy-like. Is that possible, Doctor? Theoretically, yes, I suppose it is. After all, Professor Yuri did it with hydrogen, made heavy water, and we've done it with uranium. Why would he want to do it? Why? There I can only guess. For all his genius, I've always felt Vance was a little mad. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's possible he believes that by changing the atomic weight of his body, he can make it immune to disease. Yeah, that's right. It's true. He said he was going to live forever. Uh, well, go on, Sullivan. What happened after that? He made me help him do things around the laboratory. Wire and stuff like that. Seems he got tired pretty easy and his hands was too heavy to do work that was delicate-like. Maybe that's why he needed someone else around. Finally, I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore and I fell asleep on a cot in a corner. I don't know if he ever slept or not. If he did, I never seen him. When I woke up, it was around noon and he had Matson's body propped up in a chair against a... Kind of a silver screen. So you finally got up, eh, Sullivan? I was just going to wake you. Uh, yes, sir. I, I'm kind of hungry, sir. Yes, food. Well, you're going to help me with a little experiment first, and then we can eat. Yes, sir. Uh, what kind of experiment? You, you mean? Why, yes, an experiment on our friend Matson's body. He won't mind. Just a little calcium transmutation. First, we switch on our alpha generator here. Then we make a few frequency adjustments. What? What are you going to do? You'll see. Over there, stand by that master switch on the converter. When I give the word... Yes, sir. Let it climb just a little higher. A little higher. Now! 
Body. When I threw the switch, a white light shot out of it. And I know you won't believe this. When it hit the body, it went all soft. It was like the bones had gone out of it. Just went all soft and kind of poured off the chair out of the floor. I must have faded or something when I come to. Vance was standing over me, smiling. Anything the matter, Sullivan? Don't you feel well? Yes, sir. I, I'm all right. I just that that was the most awful, most terrible thing. Sullivan, if you were a soldier and you saw that happen to the man next to you, would you feel much like fighting after that? What? You, you mean you're going to do that? I'd advise I... you not to ask too many questions. We'll dispose of the rest of the body later, but now let's eat. <laughs> I said, it was just about a week ago. I can't really tell you what happened after that because I was in the days most of the time. We worked, him showing me what to do, wire and solder and stuff. We ate. Sometimes he let me sleep. Then this morning it happened. I woke up at about ten. He was standing looking at this thing we've been making. Well, Sullivan, it's finished. Just a few adjustments and we were ready to go. Yes, sir. And I'm profoundly grateful to you for your help. I will show you how grateful in a very concrete fashion. You mean you're going to let me go? You're going to let me go? Go? Really, Sullivan? That's a little foolish, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I just thought... Yeah, I, I guess it is. Well... Where are you going? Inside to fix some breakfast. No, Sullivan. No food for you. Not today. No food? No, because tonight you're going to enjoy a tremendous experience. One I experienced myself several months ago. And the process is much simpler when the stomach is empty. Process? You... You mean you... You're going to make me like you? Heavy? Yes, Sullivan. I told you I was grateful to you and... Oh, no, Doc. No, please, will you? For heaven's sake... You're being rather childish. I'm not going to bother detailing what it will mean to you physiologically, the immunities it will give you. I will merely tell you that we'll do it tonight. Getting changed to become like he was. Heavy as lead. Well, it did something to me. It was like I'd been doped, hypnotized. All that time, afraid to do anything to make him mad. Now, now I was even more scared to stay. I made out like everything was fine, and I waited. I waited and watched. And about an hour ago, I got my chance. He went into the house to get something. He didn't lock the door. I was out like a shot. Grabbed his car and started down the driveway. As I went past the house, I heard a window open. Gentlemen, come back. Come back. You'll regret this. You'll regret it. That's the story. I was so jittery, I went to a ditch just outside of town and had to run the west of the way. I don't care whether you believe me or not, whether you think I'm nuts, what you do to me. I just want one thing. Get me away from here. Get me far away fast. Because he's going to be coming after me. I know it. No. I'm not saying what I think. Not yet. What about you, Dr. Carden? I... I wouldn't like to say either. Knowing Vance, I believe he's capable of everything Sullivan told us. Theoretically, everything he described is possible. No, I told you. I don't care whether you believe me or not. 
Just get me away from here. I can't for an hour or so. I have to call Bridgeton, have them send down some men. Then we can really go into this. In the meantime, I'll... I'll put you in one of the detention cells. We'll be okay there. Are they strong? Really strong? Plenty strong enough to keep you in and anyone else out. Come on. Gee, Sarge, I was starting to get a little worried. I was a... You. Yes, Sullivan. You didn't really think you were going to get away, did you? What are you going to do? You can't do anything. The cell door is locked. Is it? Let's see. There, you see. You can't break it down. You can't. It's steel. Yes, Sullivan. But steel can be smashed if it has to be. No. I told you you'd regret running away, didn't no, I? No, no. no I'll look, I'll come back. I'll do anything you want. I'm... I'm afraid it's too late, Sullivan. No. Too late for anything but this. Dr. Carton. Uh, did you hear it, too? I'm not sure. It did sound like... This way, quick. Good Lord. Look at that cell door. Sullivan, his, his skull smashed like an eggshell. Well, Sergeant, I guess I must be nuts, too. Or, look, Doc, he must have just left here. If we wait for the men from Bridgeton, give him time enough to get back to his place of those blasted gray things of his, there's no telling what he'll do, how many lives he'll cost. But if we leave right now, the two of us, maybe we can get there before him, cut him off. What do you say? You game? I'm game, Sergeant. Let's go. <laughs> Laboratory's probably around and back. Well, Sergeant, the lights are on. Yeah. Maybe he left them on when he came into town and got Sullivan. Or maybe... No. No, listen. He's back. We're too late. What in heaven's name is that? An electrostatic generator or cyclotron. He's... Oh, good Lord. Up the mountain there. Look. Great Scott... Looks like a hole or something. But it's moving. A neutron beam. Disintegrating. Eating its way into the mountain. He must have found some way of harnessing... Dr. Garden, swinging his way. Must have seen us. Come on, run. No good, Sergeant. Seems to have a range of almost half a mile. But, but eating through solid rock that way. If it hits us... You came to see just what Vance was doing, eh, <laughs> Well, take a good look. The last one you'll ever take at anything. Well, you shall be the first to... Uh, did you think that you were going to get away with it, Vance? Uh, who's that? Take a look at the guy. Gentlemen, too much. Get, get, cut that down. And what'll happen when you release the load? But I, I've got to cut it down. Besides, you're, you're just some of them. Yeah, that's because I'm dead that you join me. You can't do it alone. It's too heavy. Too slow. It's time to be high. Good Lord, I... The generator. I've got to cut that down, too. 
Dr. Garden. Dr. Garden, where are you? Over. Over here, Sergeant. You all right? A little shaken up, but yes, I'm all right. The laboratory. The whole house. Look. Yes. What happened? Something. Something got out of control. Too much centrifugal force. The load released too suddenly, and the whole thing exploded. Now there are things that we'll never know. Except something we knew already. That science can either be man's servant or his master and his doom. And as I stand there, gazing at the smoking ruins that were once Vance's laboratory, through the blessed silence comes the distant clang of the clock in the town's church steeple for the second time, striking twelve for... Murder! again when death hovers like a dark cloud and the clocks strike twelve for murder at midnight. The part of Shield Sullivan was played by Frank Reddick. With music by Charles Paul, Murder at Midnight was directed by Anton M. Leader. Music is my life and my love. And it was all I needed until now. Now I'm driven to tell this story, which happened exactly as I will describe it to you. It started on the day when I took over the management of the great Paris Opera House from the elderly and famous René Castelot. 
And last, Robert, but certainly not least, is this contract. A contract in a memorandum book? Why, René? Because that's the way the ghost wants it. <laughs> I, I never knew that the revered opera manager, René Castellot, had such a delightful sense of humor. Contract with a ghost. <laughs> Surely you're not serious. The opera ghost professes to be primarily concerned that the management give to every performance the splendor that belongs on what he calls the premier lyric stage of France. And of course this ghost will be the sole judge of the artistic splendor of a performance? Well, of course. However, there are two other conditions on which he places equal importance. Any attempt to perform an opera will meet with disaster if my allowance of 20,000 francs a month is more than 10 days late. Well, let me see. That monthly figure would amount to 240,000 francs a year. And this joker has further conditions? Oh, yes. Uh, if you'll allow me. Box five on the Grand Tier shall be placed at my disposal for every performance. Oh, surely you don't mean to tell me that you took these ridiculous demands seriously? I observed them scrupulously. You never defied him or threatened to have him arrested? How does one arrest a ghost? Well, when he comes to take his seat in box five. He never occupied box five. And you still kept it vacant? Certainly. Well, you won't find me wasting a box that way. I intend to sell it. Well, that's your privilege as the new manager. But if you'll take my advice, you'll never sell Box 5. I didn't know whether to laugh at Castello's foolishness or to cry because such a brilliant impresario had obviously fallen victim to some hoax. However, more immediate problems were demanding my attention. My soprano sent word that she was too ill to appear that evening in the role of Marguerite in Faust. I replaced her with a young girl named Christine Donat, who to mine and everyone else's amazement gave a performance which brought down the house. You were in charge with your brother. I was until I heard that Christine was to sing tonight, and then I rushed to Paris. Forgive my rudeness. I mean to congratulate you upon your appointment as the manager of the opera. Now I must congratulate you on choosing Christine. I never uh, heard her sing like this before. Nor have I. What a triumph. Look at her. She seems quite overcome. Uh, overcome? Nothing. She, she's ill. She's, she's fainted. led Paul Duran quickly backstage to Christine Donat's dressing room. A crowd had gathered outside her door. I made my way through with Paul by my side. I opened the door and saw that the house physician was by her side. To my surprise, Paul Duran walked swiftly to the couch on which Christine was lying and knelt down beside her. She turned her head, opened her eyes, and said, Monsieur, who are you? Mademoiselle. When we were little children playing together at Perrault, I was the little boy who went into the sea to rescue your scarf. Well, how amusing, monsieur. Mademoiselle, since it pleases you not to recognize me, I should like to say something to you in private, something very important. 
When I'm better, please. And now I should very much like to be alone. I want all of you to go away. Please. I wasn't aware that you knew Christine. Oh, I've known her for a long time, Robert. Ever since we were children. But we are no longer children, my friend. So why should we hang about outside her dressing room door like a pair of... And I know her well enough to understand that she asked to be alone because she wanted the chance to talk to me privately. <laughs> I didn't get that impression. But if you're convinced... Look, I'll prove it to you. Come on, let's go back and knock at her door, and you'll see... I don't know what you want of me. She seems to have someone in there with her. But that's impossible. We saw everyone leave when we did. Christine, you must love me. I do, I do. You know I sing only for you. Nevertheless, someone must have stayed behind. Maybe we can learn something. I do not listen at doors. I'm going in. No, no, no. Wait, wait. For my sake. Are you very tired? Tonight I gave you my soul and I am exhausted. Your soul is beautiful, child, and I thank you. The angels wept tonight. I must go home. Of course. They're sure to catch us each. No, 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 no. Come here. Quickly. They'll never see us in this corner. She's, she's, she's alone. There's no one with her. He must have remained in her dressing room. And she didn't lock her door. I'm going in and find out who was with her. Are you with me? Of course, Paul. Come on. There's no light in here. He must be hiding. Strike a match, please. Hiding isn't going to help you. We know you're here. We heard you. Now come out. Can you see anyone? No. Well, he must be here somewhere. And we'll find him wherever he's hiding. You may as well come out now and, and save us trouble. I intend to find out who you are. There's no one here. And no place to hide. We're talking to the walls. <laughs> Robert, you know my family goes back to the days of Napoleon. And I'm sure you feel I lied to you when I said I knew Christine Donat. Certainly you had every What's right... What's this about Donat? Well, this letter will prove to you that I wasn't lying. You see, she says right here, I have not forgotten the little boy who went into the sea to rescue my scarf. Then you know where she is. Of course. She is in Peru. And she is inviting me there, too, because it is the anniversary of her father's death. Uh, her father and I were friends. Do you mind if I go with you? How do you know I am going? Oh, don't talk nonsense. You're going because you're in love. And I'm going to bring back a singing sensation who hasn't been heard since the night of her triumph. So you came after all. I was thinking while I was at Mass... Will he come, and will he remember the end of the setting sun? You knew I would come, and you knew I would remember, Christine. Oh, I also brought Monsieur Grand. Well, how nice, but why did you... I am here to ask you to return to the opera, mademoiselle, and to ask you to sing other roles. Oh, you will have to excuse me, Monsieur Grand, but I cannot talk of singing other roles now. But I have come all this way, mademoiselle, just to... I did not ask you to come. Or you either, Paul. You asked me to come, Christine. You knew your letter would bring me here to Perrault as surely as the sun shines. Well, that may have been a mistake on my part. There was no point in my remaining, as it was obvious that there was a lover's quarrel brewing. 
So I told Paul he could find me in my room. What you hear now is what Paul told me happened after I left them in the sitting room. Why do you say mistake, Christine? I don't know. When I wrote the letter, I was thinking of my childhood and my father and, and the games we played as children. I, I think I wrote to you as the little girl I was then and, and not the woman I am now. When I came to you in your dressing room the other night, was that the first time you noticed me? No. I'd seen you in your box. I, I knew you were in the audience. Oh, good. Then why, when you saw me in the dressing room and I reminded you about the scarf, why did you pretend not to know me and laugh at me? <laughs> all right, all right. I know it was because there was someone in your dressing room, Christine. What are you talking about? The man to whom you said, I sing only for you tonight. I give you my soul and I am exhausted. You were listening at the door. That's the most... I listened, Christine, because I love you. Yes. Yes, I heard everything. All right, Paul. Tell me what else you heard. I heard him reply that your soul is beautiful, child, and I thank you. The angels wept tonight. Oh, Paul. You should not have heard that. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. And where is Christine now? Oh, I assume she went to her room. She ran from me, Robert. Why would she run from me? Oh, don't ask me to explain why women do the things they do. Why would she flee the opera after the triumph she had? There must be some explanation. There must be. Uh, I can give you one you won't like. The voice we heard was the voice of Christine's lover. He didn't know about you, nor were you aware of his existence. She ran away to try to get things straightened out. That's why she wrote you. She knew you'd come here, and she'd be able to speak to you away from her lover. I won't believe it. Uh, don't forget, we checked, and there was no one in her dressing room. And don't forget, we both distinctly heard a man's voice. He had to be her lover. Or... Or someone who's been giving you problems, Monsieur Manager. Someone who calls himself the Opera Ghost. At this point, I think I can say that I've become an authority on ghosts and their habits. Now, I've heard of ghosts who clank, ghosts who moan, ghosts who scream, wail, and even gnash their teeth. But this is the first time I've encountered a lovesick ghost who's also an opera lover. I'll be back shortly with Act Two. From time immemorial, out-of-the-way places have been favorite meeting spots for young lovers. Ready to start eating healthier? Meet Kachava. Kachava is the world's healthiest all-in-one meal shake. A complete meal in seconds to keep you going for hours. It's made with over 70 plant-based superfoods and nutrients. Giving you all your essentials in one delicious meal. Cheers! <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Thank you. Just water, two scoops, blend and go. Putting you in control of your nutrition to improve your well-being, to fuel your body and mind. Only the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Made for health-conscious people on the go. It's a simple change in your daily routine to kickstart a healthier way of life. It's amazing what you can do when you eat healthy and feel your best. Join thousands of happy customers using Kachava to achieve their health goals. It all starts with changing what you put into your body. Click the link and start today. I'm John at Select Cycle in beautiful downtown Greensboro. Want to tell you about something we're getting ready to put together on Halloween. It's a great event. With me today is Randy Olson, and he can tell you a little bit more about the event they've been doing for the last 12 years, and we're just happy to have them. Thanks, John. Yeah, we're having Saddlebag Suites, which, like John said, is the 12th anniversary. Uh, this year, we're coming downtown Greensboro. We're going to have a, a lot of events going on. We're going to have cars coming by where you can get candy. Uh, out of the passenger side of the vehicle, or you can bring the kids, they can dress up, they can get out of the car and come down and participate in games, get candy, see, uh, do s'mores. Um, we'll even have some games lined up on the sidewalk, so it should be a fun day. So Randy, do they have to ride a motorcycle down here? They don't have to ride a motorcycle, but we are asking the bike community to help us uh, with lining the streets uh, with, with a lot of motorcycles. So anybody riding, come on out. We'll show you how we can help. But really, this is a great event for Halloween. It's a safe event. Bring the kids all ages. It's a, it's a very friendly event for them. We're looking at lots of sideline things like face painting, some music, s'mores, fire pits. Really enjoyable. And as you know, this downtown area is very vibrant. There will be all kinds of things associated with this going on near us. So I think, Randy, the best thing is maybe show them how we're going to do this outside and get an idea of where it's going to be. Okay, well, let's go. So we're excited to start with our bikes up at Smith Street and, and the corner of Smith and Eugene and come all the way down, all the way to Melmead. You can drive through again, or you can stop and get out at one of the area parking areas, and there'll be plenty of signage to tell you where to park, and uh, just look for the action. So, Randy, if they want more information or they want questions answered, where do they need to go for that information? Go to FullThrottleBikerChurch.com. Uh, FullThrottleBikerChurch.com is where you'll find all our information, the flyer, and, and all the details. We're going to be right in the middle of downtown, and if you can't see behind us, there's a lot of construction. Don't be afraid of that. This event's going regardless. The city has given us some graces and are going to really help us with this event. We will continue this event regardless of anything. There'll be plenty of way to access. We want to fill these entire two blocks up. We want to go as far as you can see, the other side of the office building. 
was nothing but bikes back then and lots of kids, lots of families, lots of friends. And don't forget, we're surrounded by breweries and restaurants and things around here. If you want to go out with your family afterwards and have a dinner or something, there's plenty of places. Right next door, we got the Acropolis, one of the best restaurants, oldest restaurants in the city. Calling all bikers. Calling all bikers. Need you to help us out. And when a quarrel interrupts the course of true love, it's a common occurrence to find one of the unhappy pair sitting and waiting at their favorite trysting place, certain that the other must turn up. A cemetery, however, would seem a most unlikely place for a girl to expect to find her lover. Christine. I knew you'd come to pay your respects to my father at his grave, Paul. And I waited here to tell you something very serious. Paul, do you remember the Angel of Music? Oh, yes. Your father never told a story without mentioning him. I remember him saying that at least once in every great musician's life, the artist receives a visit from the angel. Yes. And sometimes, Paul, the angel leans over an infant's cradle, and that infant then has heard the angel, and the infant becomes a child prodigy. I remember... And when I asked Father if he had ever heard the angel of music himself, he, he shook his head sadly. But, Paul, he told me that I would hear the angel one day. He said... When I'm in heaven, I shall send him to you. Paul, I have been visited by the angel of music. I don't doubt it. How is it that today you understand so well? You forget that I've heard you sing many times. And I never heard you sing the way you sang the other night. You were touched by genius. Yes, the angel of music. He comes every day to give me lessons in my dressing room. In your dressing room? The, the angel of music. What does he look like? You should know better than to ask that, Paul. I, I've never seen him. I only hear his voice. He speaks to me, and it, it's, it, it's like in a dream. Are you sure you didn't dream all of this, Christine? How could I? I'm not the only one who heard the voice of the angel. Someone else has heard this voice? You, Paul. It was his voice you heard when you listened outside my dressing room door. Oh, Christine. You needn't have gone to such an elaborate lie to try to deceive me about the voice I heard. You think I lied? After all, I know what I heard. I'm beginning to understand. You think that that was a real man's voice. Well, if you had opened the door, you would have seen that there was no one in my dressing room. After you left, I did open the door, and there was no one there. And you still don't believe... I do not. Oh, how could I have ever loved you? Go away. I never want to see you again. The return trip to Paris wasn't pleasant. Paul Durand wanted so desperately to believe that his darling Christine was the victim of some cruel hoax. While I was convinced that Christine was an artful minx who was trying to keep two men on a string. This belief was strengthened by a telephone call I received the following day at my office. Grand speaking. Carlotta Sorelli. Oh, good day, madame. What can I do today for my beautiful prima donna? First, my dear Monsieur Grand, you must learn that I am not a woman easily intimidated. I 
I'm sure you're not. But why do you call I me? I intend to sing the role of Marguerite in Faust Thursday night. Well, of course you do. Why would you call and tell me what has already been announced? Because of a note I received this morning. It reads, if you dare to appear as Marguerite next Thursday evening, be prepared for a gigantic misfortune. Oh, a prank, a jokester. Surely you're not going to take that seriously. That's exactly what I called to tell you. And I'm pleased you're taking it so well. Even if I were dying, I would sing the role of Marguerite next Thursday night. Before that Thursday night, I had to face the problem of the first masked ball to be held in the opera house under my direction. This was to be a truly gala affair, with everyone in fancy dress. I knew from experience that every artist would be there, hoping to meet and fascinate a masked member of the upper crust. I, of course, attended unmasked. <laughs> Robert! Robert! Oh, Paul! Is that you behind this black domino? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I suppose you're seeking Christine, hoping to discover what masquerade she uses tonight. Huh? I don't have to hope. My Christine is behind that white domino over there, and we have a tryst in box 17 on the Grand Tier at midnight. Ah, and you're no longer concerned about that voice you heard in her dressing room? In her note making this assignation, she as much as admitted that she'd made a dreadful mistake about that voice. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Monsieur Director. What? What? When Sorelli fails to appear for Faust next Thursday, you'll replace her with the magnificent Christine. Who said that? It came from the white domino. Nonsense. Christine is wearing the white domino. Then Christine is using some trick to make sure she sings Marguerite again. Uh, there's where it came from. Uh, from the center of that crowd. The man in the scarlet cape and the death's head mask. You think so? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's almost positive. Come, let's unmask him. Read what it says on his cloak. Don't touch me, for I am the Red Death stalking abroad. You see, hold that man Stop in the scarlet cloak. Quickly, after him. Stop no, that man. no, no, don't touch him. He wears the mask of death. Who was that man? Why did you tell everyone not to touch him? Please, Paul, please keep your voice down. You shouldn't have come here. All right. All right, but you were the one who asked me to meet you here in this box on the Grand Tier, remember? I know, but that was before you started to chase the Red Death Mask. And why did you stop us? What is that masquerader to you? Maybe nothing, maybe everything. Oh, Paul, you were right. The voice I hear is not an angel, but a human voice. Belonging to... I don't know. I still haven't seen him. But what made you change your mind about the angel of music? Because he forbade me to see you. How did he know about me? I told him. The first time I saw you in your box, I rushed back to my dressing room. The voice immediately noticed that I was elated, and, and, and when he asked me why, I, I saw no reason not to tell him about you. Yes, and? Well, the voice spoke to me with great sadness and said that if I were to give my heart on earth, there was nothing for the angel of music to do but go back to heaven and leave me, leave me without any more lessons. And that was a thought I couldn't bear. I knew what the lessons had done for me in a few weeks' time. But how did the voice do this? What is the secret? Believe me when I tell you I wondered myself. I, 
I even thought perhaps there might be witchcraft involved. Oh, ridiculous. You could never be caught up with the forces of evil. Well, then what is the voice? A man. Someone who... Yes? I confess, I am jealous. That's why I stopped. There is no angel of music, but there is a man. A man who must love you and, and want you as I want you. And I mean to find out who he is. No, no, you mustn't. That's why I had to see you tonight, to warn you. Promise me that you... I'll promise nothing. I am not afraid of this voice, even if you are. Paul, you must listen and, and try to hear how I discovered the voice was human. Listen, and if I have any power to transmit emotion, you will hear him as I heard him, and you will know why I'm frightened. You have lied to me, my child, because you love Paul Durand. Why should my love for Paul distress you so? I have already told you. If you love him, then you do not believe in me. Believe in me, my child. Whoso believes in me shall live and sing. Whoso believeth in me shall also reach the heights. But I shall bring down those who oppose me, all of them. And don't think Eric cannot do that. Eric? That's your name, then. You're, you're not... Your angel of music? Most certainly, my child, I have proven that to you. I am your angel, Christine. But I warn you that I have an evil side, and I have power. How is it that Sorelli fell ill the other night? How does it happen that all the directors of the opera have taken orders from me? Who are you? And why did you choose me as a pupil? Because of your purity, child, and your beauty, your gracious beauty. Where are you? Here. This is a, a childish game you're playing. Let me see. Never. The day you see my face will be doomsday for you, me, and everyone connected with the opera. And let me repeat my warning. If you want Paul Durand to live, You'll be very careful about seeing him. Who are you to give me orders? I rule here. The Opera House is my kingdom. Kingdom. And all of you are my subjects. Paul, dearest, did I succeed at all in recreating the power of that voice and the terror he inspired in me? Whoever. Or whatever he is, he, he must be completely mad. Perhaps. But nevertheless, he does have power. What does it matter? You've told me that you love me, and, and now all you have to do is leave the opera, marry me, and we'll go away together. I cannot. I dare not. That's the most fantastic tale I've ever heard, Paul. And you believe it? Every word. Mm, it's obvious that someone doesn't want Sorelli to sing Marguerite tonight. This whole rigmarole of not seeing the voice. This nonsense I don't believe. Then what do you intend to do about that note? It was Sorelli's decision to ignore this second threat, and my decision to ignore the opera ghost. 
I ask you to join me tonight in box five on the grand tier, where we will both enjoy a marvelous performance of Faust. The first act of Faust went very well, and as the curtain fell for the intermission, I allowed myself to relax in box five, where I was sitting with Paul. Well, Paul, what do you say now? Do you still think we could have used the police? The police would have been useless, Monsieur Grand. Did you say that, Paul? I didn't say a word. But you heard it. Tell me you heard it. Yes, I did hear it. Where is that voice coming from? Not from this box. We're alone in it. You are not alone. This is box five, my box. Show yourself, whoever you are. I must leave now because the house lights are dimming for the second act. And there will be a terrible calamity. Now listen, you... Raise your eyes to heaven and see and pray. And the voice is coming from our left, two boxes down. No, 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 I thought it was on the right. The lights are dimming. The chandelier! Look, Robert! Robert! What? It's swaying! It's going to fall right into the orchestra! Oh, no! Look out! Look out! A natural accompaniment of any catastrophe is an attempt to discover the cause. And so it was with the collapse of the chandelier in the Paris Opera House. The newspapers speculated wildly as to the possible cause of the fall. But strangely, there was not one word printed about the opera ghost. I'll be back with Act Three shortly. No opera manager ever faced the problems that beset Robert Grand, newly appointed director of the Paris Opera House. How does one deal with something that no one has ever seen, but whose voice has been heard and whose presence has been accepted as a fact by opera workers and by your predecessor? A thing that called itself the opera ghost and who took credit for the catastrophic fall of the great chandelier which took the lives of three people and injured many more. Robert Grand made his decision. If I can have your attention, ladies and gentlemen, please, I will explain the reason I summoned you to my office. I have decided to make my peace with the opera ghost. This envelope on my desk will be placed in box five on the grand tier at tonight's performance. It contains the 20,000 francs which the ghost, or whatever he is, demands monthly. But... I intend to reassign your locations so that box five will not be unwatched by less than three pairs of eyes for one single second. And I insist on an immediate report to me when and if you see anyone entering or leaving box five. Robert Grand. Where have you been, Robert? I've called you home, your club, even the Café de l'Opéra, and I could not reach you. Is it something important? Ghost bleeds, Robert. <laughs> Your opera ghost bleeds. Real blood. Are you drunk or just raving? And if he bleeds, as I know he does, then he's no ghost at all, but real flesh and blood. Isn't that so, Robert? What are you talking about? 
What makes you so certain that he bleeds? Because I've shot him. Yes, come to my apartment. I'll show you the bloodstain. Uh, Robert, you're here. And now I will free you from your ghost forever. I've already called the police. Here, come, let me show you the balcony. I don't want to see anything until you calm down and explain what happened. His eyes. You have to see those eyes to understand, Robert. You have to see them. Are you trying to tell me the ghost was here? Exactly. And I know how to get him here. I played on his weakness, Robert. His human weakness. His love for Christine. I told you that, but you wouldn't listen. I can't make head or tail out of what you're trying to tell me. Now, I'm willing to listen, but only if you calm down. All right. All right, Robert. Everything I suspected is true. Now, I'll try to give you an exact picture of what happened. It started when I saw Christine yesterday. Where? At her mother's. Mm. She didn't go to the opera. I went to tell her mother that I wanted to marry her and take her away. Uh, what did Christine think about this? Yes, she was frightened, terrified by this, this man posing as a ghost. Well, I, I left after telling her I would expose him. And I came home here, and it was very late, and prepared to go to bed. Uh, come, let me show you. Uh, let, let, let me show you my bedroom. Oh, I'll admit, I'll admit that my mind was filled with wild thoughts that night. Well, I turned out the light, and as I climbed into bed, suddenly, at the foot of my bed, I saw two eyes, red and glowing like coals, just the eyes. I switched on the light, leapt out of bed. The room was empty, but I saw a shadow on the balcony. I ran to the bureau, opened the drawer, and took out this revolver, and I fired twice. You see? Look, here. There are two empty chambers in my gun. Huh? Now, come. Come to the balcony, and I'll show you... I'll show you the blood. Where the door's open? Yes, yes, of course. Here. Here. Now, look. Is that blood? Yes. Yes, it is blood. Yes, of course. Now, a ghost who bleeds can be found. A wounded ghost can be traced, huh? Huh? Well? I see the blood. I also see a cat. No, there was no cat. Not on the balcony, but limping along the roof, trying to find a gutter to climb down. Oh, my dear Paul, I don't know about the eyes you think you saw glaring at you. But I'm afraid you've shot a cat. The next 48 hours will live forever in my memory. I expected that the envelope containing the 20,000 francs which I had left in the well-guarded box five would somehow disappear. It did. But as I also feared, all three persons assigned to watch the box swore no one had entered or left the box. Far more disturbing was an unannounced visit from a dangerously quiet Paul Duren on the following day. Robert, I need your help. Of course, Paul, I'll do anything in my power. But uh, don't you think that you'd better see a physician? Christine Dona will be appearing tonight in Faust. Yes, but not in the leading role. I've decided... No, that's not important. I think you should know, Robert, that she's agreed to go away with me. 
My carriage and coachman will be at the stage door promptly at 11. What I need from you is a way that she can slip out unobserved. Well, the whole backstage is honeycombed with trap doors, but I don't know any that would lead out of the opera house itself. Perhaps René Castellot might. He was the manager for 17 years before he retired. I'd appreciate it if you check with him and... And also one other favor. I don't want to be seen myself. I wonder if you'd be kind enough to let me use your office tonight while the performance is in progress? Certainly. But isn't this flight a sudden decision? It's the only way. I've spoken with Christine and... She agrees that our only hope lies in getting out of Paris, even out of France. Mm, that may be wisest, but why leave from here? Christine absolutely refuses to give up tonight's performance. Not only does she feel obligated to you, but she also believes that Eric would somehow find out that she wasn't going to appear. Oh, yes, she may have a point. The opera ghost, or Eric, as you call him, seems to know more about what goes on than I do. We'll meet back here in my office at 8 sharp. May I thank you, Monsieur Castellot, for taking the trouble to come here to tell me about the special exit. Uh, it hasn't been used in years, but, but I think the door still works. What time is it? Oh, relax. It's only 9.40. Plenty of time. She's disappeared. What? Oh, I'd better get out and see what's happening. I'll be right back. My God, there must have been another accident. Uh, from my experience, it sounds like something's happened on stage. Paul, Paul! I have terrible news, Paul. Christine has disappeared. Oh, no, that's impossible. That was the reason for the commotion. In the middle of a scene, she seemed to be lifted straight up into the air and then disappeared as the lights went out. <laughs> Christine, oh. my love, oh. please tell me you're not hurt. Oh. Well, who are you? And why are you, why are you mad? Oh. I'm sorry that I was so clumsy and made you strike your head when I... Eric, Eric, what have you done? Only what you made me do, Christine. I told you that if you'd continue to see Paul Durand, things would end badly. Where am I? In my house. It's my dearest wish that you'll grow to like it. You intend to keep me here? I cannot allow you to run off with Paul Duran as your plan. But they will look for me. And they will not find you. <sighs> Have they ever found me? <laughs> Why do you cry? You know it pains me to see you cry. <laughs> I would never keep you here against your will, but I warn you, if you leave... <laughs> You sign Paul Duran's death warrant. You're afraid even to let me look at your face. Careful, Christine. But I shall... I will tear that mask off. <laughs> You're in no danger, Christine. I will not hurt you. So long as you do not touch the mask. And you expect me to believe that? You have no better friend in the world than myself. It took all the strength that both I and René Castello possessed to hold Paul Duren in his chair in my office after he learned of Christine's disappearance. This would never have happened 
If I hadn't asked her to come away with me. Uh, I'm convinced she's still in the opera house. I've seen the thing, uh, whatever it is that calls itself the opera ghost. Where? When? Why didn't you tell us before? Well, I, I, I tried to warn well, you. Well, never mind that. Where is he? And where is Christine? Well, uh, I can tell you what I suspect. About a year ago, I worked late, and I decided to go backstage. There was only a work light, and as I stumbled around in the dark, I suddenly felt myself falling, and I landed in, well, in, in some sort of tunnel under the stage. Someone caught my arm and broke my fall, and a voice said, Careful. I looked around and saw only two fiery red eyes glaring at me out of the mask. The same eyes I saw. Although I was afraid, I, I asked the apparition his name, and he laughed and said, I am Eric, and you've invaded my domain. But since it was an accident, there will be no punishment this time. But, Mr. Manager... I warn you, Eric's secrets must remain Eric's secrets. Whatever that may have meant. Well, after the meeting, I was convinced that Eric or the opera ghost lived or haunted the subterranean cellars and caverns beneath the opera. Incredible. I investigated all the trapdoors, looking for the one through which I'd fallen. And one day, I found it. I'll show you where it is. And here is the key to Eric's house, where I believe you'll find Christine Donna. Wait. I see something. It's the door. Robert, we found it. We found his house. Uh, What's the matter? I just remembered what Rene said about the key and opening the door. Well, you can do as you like. But I am going in. What's the matter? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's tricky. Maybe it's the wrong key. No, no, it fits. But, but the tumblers seem to be stuck. Oh, is that you? Yes, yes, Christine, it's me. I, I must be dreaming. No, it's no dream. Can you help me open the door? He's tied here. Damn him. Oh, Christine, oh, my darling, what has he done to you? I'm all right. But untie me quickly. Yes. We must get out of here before he comes back. Where are we going? As high up as we can get. Faster, Paul, faster. Shouldn't we have tried to get out? We don't have time. He's due back at 11. We're trapped. No. No, push this door. It opens onto the roof. Uh, 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 the, the sky. The blessed sky. And the stars. It is only up there on the stars that you can escape me. Eric! Show your face, you coward. Where are you? Look for me behind all the smokestacks, but you won't find me. You're a coward. You're a liar. You think so? Then I show myself. Here. Here I am. At last. Here. I raise my mask a little. Only a little, but you can see my lips. Such lips as I have. And let you hear my voice. You are a coward. Show your full face. My face. You shall see my face. And then you shall die. No. No, Eric, I beg you. My face that even the mother who bore me wouldn't bear to look at. Here. Now. 
say that the phantom of the opera was a ghost, that the story of Eric was manufactured to appease a frightened public. There are others who say it never happened, and perhaps it didn't. But to those who say it never happened, I say, perhaps not. But it could have. I'll be back shortly. In looking back over the... From Mothman Podcast, good night.